Star Mindset Nation. This is Dan Gonzalez, another fun episode of the show. We are talking to Brendan Baker. As you can see, the beard is uh, getting bigger and it's no, no shave November. So I'm guessing you're in, you're down under. I am. Yes. <laughs> it's a, uh, <laughs> it's uh it's, it's uh, 5 a.m. where I am. I was, I was going to guess because uh, there's multiple different time zones over there. So I didn't know which, are you in Sydney? Uh, I'm, I'm in Canberra, which is uh, three hours South of Sydney, which it's it's a city that uh, no one no one really has heard of, and yet it's the capital city. Figure that out, hey. How do you spell that? C A M B R A. So can so it's spelled C A N B E R R A. Can it's spelled Canberra, but you don't say uh-huh. Canberra. You say Canberra. <laughs> That's amazing, and uh, yeah. I'd, I've been on your your end before, where I had to wake up early. It's it's no big deal to to, to us uh, leaders in the space. <laughs> we kind of like That's exactly it. Time. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, you do what you need to do. That's exactly it. But apologies for running uh, running a few minutes behind. No problem. No problem. Um, are you? Have you always been in Sydney, or uh, I mean, sorry, Can- Canberra? <laughs> uh, not always Canberra. I, I I did grow up in Sydney, actually. So. Sydney was home. That was that was where I was a uh, a little one, and um, uh, yeah, no, grew up and I've been Canberra for uh, probably a few years now, three or four years. Yeah, I, I always enjoy talking to Australians. Um, this it's I feel like there's there's not you can never tell who's Australian or not. So <laughs> it's like unless I unless they're unless like they make it obvious or you can really that's it's one cool accent though. I gotta. <laughs> gotta go there one day <laughs> you do you do you haven't, you haven't been down no i do have a friend uh he, he's an australian entrepreneur too he, he created blue dot have you heard of them uh maybe maybe, maybe. yeah I, I don't know him in well though no sure sure uh and he is he's out in sydney and uh he kind of was the first ceo in the tech world i met and he was so nice enough to buy me a beer and we're just friends now <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that's um, that's kind of that's par for course. So <laughs> that's the that's the Aussie culture. It's like, oh, come on down, let's have a beer, let's do it. Yeah, man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so where whereabouts are you? I'm in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area at the moment. Okay. Haven't haven't left them, but uh, got, planning to go to Hawaii in two weeks. So uh, that, that'd be oh, fun. Beautiful. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think it's a, it's it's the common it's a common story though, isn't it? The uh, you know, not leaving like for what two two and a half years or whatever it is now. We're all kind of going. Oh gosh! Oh, let's 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 go. Let's go do things. Um, <laughs> are the are the airlines uh, over in the US there? Are they ratcheting? Have they ratcheted their prices up to exorbitant levels? Uh, not to my knowledge. I I I do think that there is inflation everywhere though, so it's probably yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The 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 Australian airlines have um. The prices they are charging, they're trying to recapture all of their losses from COVID. Uh, you could just, you could tell because the prices are absolutely nuts. Are are you? Uh, how, what's your? Do you do you always spend your time in that part of Australia, or you, you travel often, or what's your what's your schedule? Um. So yeah. So I um. It, it's often I, I'll pop around different parts of Australia. Uh, I, I tend to serve. Um, most of my work is virtual, uh, but I will fly around to different other Australian cities to deliver the work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, Brandon, I got a quick question though. Like just mm-hmm. to, there's only so much I can learn from reading, but just wanted to hear yep. from you. Like what, uh, are you an entrepreneur? You're, I know you're an author, but what's, what's kind of the bread and butter? Like how can I better understand what you deliver to the world? Uh, so um, and, and just to hang up, so I know we're recording. Have we formally kicked in? If we haven't, have we formally? Oh, just no, no, no. Pre-chat no, no, no. Or... We'll, we'll do <laughs> Oh, good. So, so what, what I do is um, I, I, I specialize in change leadership. And change leadership is um, basically what I do is I work with the people in organizations who lead change. So I help other people change their organizations essentially um 
And I help them do it in a simple way that actually pays off because the problem is, and I've been, I've been on the other side of the fence. I haven't always been an you know, entrepreneur in my own business and, and, you know, running it myself. I've, I started my career working on in other big organizations yeah, as a project manager, as a, as a, you know, change manager, as a, as a portfolio lead, those kinds of roles. And what I found was that um, it just so much of the delivery, so much of the work, um, even if it did get delivered, which it didn't always get delivered, but if, even if it did, it didn't often solve the original problem. Uh-huh. And so the work just wasn't valuable. And, and yet it was hard, like driving projects, driving change, especially in these kind of big, unwieldy style organizations. Um, it's really hard and it takes an emotional toll on people. And yet you get to the end and you go, well, this isn't, this hasn't solved it. Right. Um, so uh-huh. that's where I've got my, that's where I have my sights uh, dialed in on that. Going, well, how do we how do we make this more valuable? How do we make this more useful? And how do we do that really simply? Because no one has the time to get into lots and lots of detail. And so, in terms of what that looks like, just to you know help you picture what it, um, what it means. So, I've got a small business. We've we've got a, it's a team of five of us, um, and it's uh, a lot of advisory work as well as capability uplift. So I do training, I do advisory, I advise people. Uh-huh. Um, and I will often, I'll also do what I call rapid mobilization. Well, I'll go in and do some small targeted consulting work as well. Very cool. Very cool. Today, what's up to our mindset today? We're talking to Brendan Baker. Um, he is a leader in the change management space. He has his own book out called Valuable Change. He's coming to us from... I'm going to butcher the name, but Cranber- Cranborough? Canberra. Canberra. <laughs> I still can't spell it, but uh, that's in Australia. So, um, Brendan, welcome from Down Under. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> and, uh, and don't stress uh, the, the Canberra thing. Even though it's our capital city, no one seems to know where it is or how to say it. So, it's all good. Is it, is it near, Mel- near Melbourne? Uh, it's well oh. f- funny. Uh, my I don't know if this is the formal theory, but my theory on this is Sydney and Melbourne couldn't decide who would have the capital city, so they made a city in between them. So if you, if you roughly know where Sydney and Melbourne is, it's a little bit in. It's it's you draw a line. It's almost in. It's almost halfway between the two. And you go, okay, that's the capital city. My goodness. Well, kudos, kudos to you for doing this part because uh, you you said it was r- r- bright and early in the morning and. I have a one quick question that's not related to, I guess, business, whatever, but is, is it, what's a weather? I mean, what's, is it hot? Is it your winter during the summer or is it summer during the winter? What's it like over there, man? Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're all backwards down here or in actually the way I see it, you're all backwards up there. Um, uh-huh. But uh, no, no, no. So where we, um, well, it's meant to be spring. Uh, we're, we're meant to be a couple of weeks away from summer and yet it snowed last week. So I don't know. I don't know what's happening. It's, <laughs> it snows it's over absolutely, there? <laughs> uh, it does. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Canberra is only, um, so we have, we have small pockets of snowy mountains and whatnot. And um, Canberra gets actually rather cold. So yes, it snowed last week, even though we're a couple of weeks away from summer and it will ratchet up uh, and <laughs> Canberra will sometimes be on fire and other times it'll be snowing. It's a, it's a crazy place. Oh goodness! I, I, I uh, I'm gonna add that to my list of places to travel for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Brent, Brent, I'd love to just get a better sense of who you are. Do you mind, like, just telling the listeners about what you do? And yeah, absolutely. So, uh, look, first of all, as you introduced, I'm Brendan, um, but I live and breathe change leadership, and change leadership for me is the ability to drive a change and when I say change it's it's in the broadest possible tense uh, sense as in you know, how do we how do we change something from A to B from X to Y whatever it is really really broad how do we drive a change and make it meaningful and and so that's essentially the challenge because I've lived and breathed organizational change uh, in organizations small medium and large my entire career and what I've noticed is that Number one, change is hard, really hard, uh, and it has an emotional toll. It has a it has a 
uh, a fiscal toll. It has a time toll. Like that, there's heavy investment in it. And yet across my career, I kept seeing similar patterns in that it doesn't often pay off. Even if the, the thing that you're building, changing, doing, whatever, if, even if you actually deliver it, which doesn't often happen, well, I'm sorry, which doesn't always happen. It does often happen, but it doesn't always happen. But it, let's say you deliver it, you get to the end. It doesn't often solve the original problem. And yet you get there and you go, well, we've done now, that project's sorted. Let's, let's move on. And so because it's hard, we really need to be making sure it's worthwhile. And there's only, there's, there's an interesting pattern at play there in that the industry, and I won't delve too technical here, but the way that the industry is broken up in terms of project management and change management, and there's, there's all these terms to describe very specific things, right? Project management's all about, let's just get this thing delivered and change management's all about, let's make the people think differently. And then benefits management is all about, let's, let's, figure out that ROI and what, what our metrics are and everything else. The problem with that is no one has the capacity to do all of it. No one has the money to hire the team to do, to, you know, the, the team of specialists to do all of these things. And so you end up, you end up with blinkers on because you go, well, we're just going to focus on one of these areas and you, and you lose the full picture. And so what I do is challenge that notion and connect it all back together and i call that change leadership is when you connect all these things back together how do you think about a change or a project or initiative or whatever i don't care what you call it how do you think about that in a holistic way so that all of the pieces aren't separated but together and you can only do that by thinking about it with simplicity in at, at the front of mind because no one has the time to go and get deep and narrow and niche in all of these areas right right so right. so that's that's what the aim is. It's change is hard. So let's make sure it's worthwhile and let's fight all unnecessary complexity. Let's, let's return really to the core of simplicity in order to do so. Right. Yeah. That's quite fascinating. I feel like a lot of things in human nature, people just love the comfort of the known and changes, you know, embracing the unknown and kind of just what you perceive would be the outcome but no one is a, you know, uh, no one has a time machine. We'd never know what the future holds. Um, and, and that's just coming from a personal level, but I think, you know, with your niche of, uh, big businesses called, you know, uh, people who are trying to change a whole company and turn directions that, that does sound like it needs, uh, uh, not only a consultant necessarily, but just, um, a lot of thought and a lot of, uh, a lot of big decisions to be made. Can you tell me a little bit about how you help those clients of yours in terms of uh, fostering what they're trying to achieve? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But um, something interesting there is that the same lessons and the same patterns are at play, even if you're big business or small business. Uh, so I use, I use the principles. I mean, so I've, I've got a, I've got a small team. We're, we're light, nimble, uh, you, uh -huh. you know, where, you know, where, that I run. And I use all the same principles that I would then coach my clients on. And my clients, uh, some of which are small, couple of hundred size businesses and others are uh, looking after 12,000 people, right? Um, so the principles work and that's the, that's the art of returning to simplicity. And so what, what I'll share here is, uh, I mean, I, I help in a few different ways in terms of I advise people, I, I coach people, I uh, run training programs, I uplift, um, I, I do those kinds of things. I also go in and do some more targeted consulting work when we need to have rapid mobilization or rapid clarity or facilitation. There's a bunch of ways I can work, but what's useful for your listeners here is how I think about change leadership, how I put those pieces together. And I think this is, this is useful no matter what change you're driving and what, no matter what size business you're, you're, you're operating within. And so if we put the pieces of the change back together, I tend to think about them as ripples, not as pillars or not as linear things or anything else. These are ripples in a pond um, that you as a change leader need to keep flowing, essentially. Your focus needs to remain on these three ripples. Um, and, I, and I say the, the term ripple on purpose. And before I, to, to explain why, I'm going to ask you a question, Dan. 
Um, when was the last time you went to a restaurant? Fast and ate there or just picked up food? Yeah. No, dude, you ate there, yeah. Uh, about a week or two ago. Yep. What was the experience? Positive, negative? I think the majority of it was good. Yeah, positive. Yeah. And so how did you... How did you feel walking away from that? Did it have a, uh, a, a, a did it leave a lasting feeling? Yeah, well, I, I was, uh, I enjoy the food and uh, it was a good dinner with my mom. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's one of those things where you, you probably don't really think about it or notice it. Um, but I've certainly found when you go and have a, you know, an experience at the restaurant or, and it's, it's more pronounced when it's, it's a negative experience, right? It's, you notice it far more. Like if, if you've had a negative experience at a restaurant, maybe a sarcastic waiter, or you've had really slow food or yeah, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I went to a restaurant, but it was only takeout, but it was still like negative. I even wrote yep. a Yelp review. Yep. And it was too negative. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so right, tell me about that. How did you feel after, after, I mean, obviously frustrated or enough to leave a Yelp review. Uh, and that, that pro- feeling probably stuck with you for what, 30 minutes, 40 minutes afterwards. Sure. Yeah. Well, the thing is like, I, I guess like I went to my friend's sister's birthday party and, uh, I was a little bit of drunk and I don't know, I needed some food and it was late at night, but I went to this fast food chain and um, I ordered on DoorDash, but the thing was I wanted like a dipping sauce and I asked him how much and he said three bucks for a tiny dipping sauce. I was like, are you on drugs, man? <laughs> like, get out of here. I'm not coming back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know. And, and so, and, and so there's that emotional feeling afterwards uh typically and, and it will sit with us and so what what's happening there is there the experience of either the systems or their morale or the way that they are delivering that experience is rippling through and influencing you right and it's it's a simple example i mean i've, I've got a really simple example myself where uh, about a month and a half ago i like to do my i like to do my grocery shopping really early in the morning um as early as they let me uh, I've got a couple of young kids, and so it's like, all right, uh, let's let's let mum rest in bed. Uh, let's and I'll take the kids out. And we go get our grocery shopping done at seven a.m. in the morning as soon as they open. And so I'm there with a five-year-old and a two-year-old. We've done our grocery shopping with a massive trolley of two hundred plus things, you know, just full, full to the brim. And um, it's probably seven thirty in the morning, and I get to the checkouts and there's only one checkout open and it's the express lane, which is, you know, 14 items or less. So they're not geared up to handle the, the, the amount of stuff I've got in my trolley. So I, I've got no other choice though. There's no one else on the checkouts. Um, so I'm there. Uh, she's glaring at me, the person behind the checkout. She's glaring at me the entire time, just like throwing daggers my way. And, and, and I'm sitting there frustrated at her because I'm like, I didn't have any choice. Like, what, what do you want me to do? There's nothing else. Open. <laughs> and so it's this really frustrating negative experience. And I walked away for about, for about 45 minutes afterwards. I was like, oh, that was terrible. That was truly, truly horrible. And, he, and here's the interesting thing, right? So, so there was a ripple effect between her and I and that experience onto me. But the ripple started, it wasn't her fault. That ripple started back with probably store management where store management chose it's early morning. We don't have that many customers come in early morning. Let's only put express open. Right. And so they probably sure. didn't staff up enough or they didn't, but it was, it was choices made at that point. And so it rippled through really, really simple example. And, and yet it's that exact same pattern that happens in change. And so when you're, when you're leading a change, you need to be thinking in terms of ripples and the very first thing you've got to get right, the first thing you've got to get right is you've got to be, you've got to work on clarity. And again, I don't care what size your, your change is. If you're like, if you just want to do something different tomorrow, you probably uh-huh. need to, you know, work through something like this. But, um, but especially if you want to change something that's a three month work piece of work, six month piece of work, 12 month piece of work, um, this is highly, highly valuable. So you need to start with your core clarity and core clarity is answering why are we doing this? How will we prove success? And what exactly are we doing? Right. I like it. 
I, I guess just to Brendan to, to kind of come into the conversation, just, I feel like we can all use change, right? We want to be healthier. We want to make more money. We want to, uh, grow on social media. We want to make more friends. We want to find love, whatever it is. Right. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, and I guess in businesses you want to, they have those, um, couple of those things like drive more money and create shareholder happiness, all these things. Um, and to kind of get into that, like, I, I guess it just, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they have revenue goals or just we'll launch a new product or, uh, we'll, uh, start in a new area of the world. Um, but, but that, that stuff's kind of murky, right? And, you know, mm -hmm. when you get into like, why are we doing this and like, who's doing it and like kind of just those core principles, I think it makes things a little bit uh, more just approachable, but I feel like mm. as humans, we, we always have a emotional element or we always have like a, what do you say? Like a physical and like just self-interest motivated um, element into the things that we do. And uh, I think just to get into your point, what, what are you really saying is like the, I wouldn't say the thesis of the book and mm. the company, no, but like, yeah. Can you just tell me a little bit about, about like maybe like what the um I guess yeah what's like the thesis here just because I feel like there's so much to wrap your head around like what's yeah. what do you want us to really know so so but what I want you to know is change happens in ripples first of all get clear on what you're doing then look to drive it and then look to influence that's essentially it right so it happens in that order. Um, and the reason why I say ripples is you cannot do the, the second ripple before you have the first. You can't do it effectively. So you can't deliver well unless you're clear on why you're delivering and what success looks like. And, and that's, that's a major issue because we all tend to just start with the what. We see the shiny thing, you know, the, oh, let's do this new idea, let's, let's do amazing new product, right? Um, and we go, okay, well, let's, let's go and deliver it. And so you go, we've got clarity on what we're doing. Let's go and get it done. But we don't spend enough time stepping back and going, well, what are we actually solving? What are, what's the opportunity? What's the problem? Basically, why are we doing this? And understanding what's the metric shifts we're looking to change. What does success uh -huh. actually look like here, right? Um, and setting some targets around that. And then once you've done that, it makes delivery much easier. And when I say delivery, it's, it's, you know, project management, it's, it is delivery. It's all of those elements. It's going and building the bloody thing. Um, but it's also uh, maintaining morale and driving momentum within your teams, right? Um, because when you're driving change, if you're building something new, you're going to be making mistakes along the way. You're going to be getting it wrong. And if you're trying to get, if you have a team of people that are trying to change how another team works, right? So if you're building a, you know, changing a piece of software, um, then the users of that software are going to resist. And so you've got to get these pieces in place right first in order to move, you know, basically move forwards um, because that final ripple is all about influencing other people. And it's like, okay, well, how do we do that? And we, we tend to do that effectively. If you want them to voluntarily adopt what you're doing, if you don't want to just force sure. them to do it, which you can, I mean, that's, that's a genuine option. Um, but if you want them to voluntarily do it, then you need to be doing it. You need to be understanding things from their point of view. You need to be thinking like with that. empathy, right? Uh, and there's a really simple way to think about that. Um, in fact, uh -huh. uh, uh, I, I might share a, a quick little story to uh, around. Uh, I've got a, Absolutely, I've got a, yeah. um, a simple, there's a simple equation that underpins why anyone does anything. Um, so, which is really useful when you're looking to drive change because when you're looking to get someone to do something different, uh, it's, it's good to know why they're doing what they are currently doing and why they're not doing what you want them to be doing, right? So, so behavioral researchers um, over in Belgium were looking at the human response to pain. Mm -hmm. And um, they were looking at uh, basically the, the idea up to that point had been uh, that humans don't like pain. We will do whatever we can to avoid pain. That sounds pretty logical. Would you agree? I think so. I, I yeah. uh, agree with you. Yeah, it sounds logical. Now, these researchers said, no, that's not the full picture. There's more to it than that. And so what they did, uh, they got 
uh, they got two groups of students. And the first group of students, and we'll call them the poor souls, the first group of students, they um, strapped them up to a machine, uh, which essentially electrocuted them. And uh, they put a screen in front of them, with, with, which had some really simple you know, number and letter-based questions, like one plus one equals two, those kinds of things, right? Um, and every time that, these, that this group got a question correct, they got zapped. Now, any uh, guesses as to how many questions this group did? 15? <laughs> I don't have the exact number. The, the, the general <laughs> feeling is uh, not very many, right? Not very many at all. Um, because was it a painful shock? Like, well, how painful yeah. was it? Painful? Uh, pa painful enough that the researchers had to go and get permission from their ethics committee before running, uh, before oh, running the thing. So painful enough that it's painful. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, so that, that's the first group. Uh, they were basically proving that idea, humans don't like pain, right? That, again, we all knew that. Then there's the second group, and we'll call these the well-remunerated poor souls. So okay. second group, strapped them up to the same machine, same sets of questions, except the researchers changed a couple of things. Uh, number one, they told, um, they told this group, uh, that the more points they got, the uh, the more money they got at the end of the of the experiment, and they put a point counter on the screen. So every time they got a correct answer, they got a point. Really simple change, right? Um, but the points were attached to the amount of money, the remuneration at the end. Um, any guesses as to which group completed more of the questions? Group two, yeah, group two. Again, it's you know, well, they had they you know it's it's logical. It's it it makes sense. It's you know well of course they did. They're getting more money for it. Um, but it's interesting because it wasn't just the money at play. And I think the researchers may have missed something here. Is that these were university students or college students, right? So there is no way in the world that these people weren't walking away at the end of that once they had a point counter. There's no way that in the world they were not competing with each other. There is no way in the world they weren't saying, oh, I got seven points. Oh, I'm going to go beat you, right? And, and, and trying to have that peer-level competition as well as attaching it to the money. And so there were a number of factors that were starting to stack up. It became a game is what I suspect. Um, and so what we learned from that is that it's not so much that humans avoid pain. Um, it's that humans avoid pain unless there's a good enough reason to endure it. Wow. Yeah, like love. What would you say the reasons were? Money, love. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, what there's, is it? <laughs> so there's there's a great many reasons why we can endure pain. Uh, and and so when you're looking at change, change is painful. Change is hard. Um, what you want to really keep front of mind there is that if you're looking for a specific decision, there's two factors. There's reward and pain. In right. fact, the equation is reward minus pain equals decision. And so anything you're doing, you know, basically anything you've decided to do in your life uh -huh. and anything anyone else is deciding to do in their, li in, your, in their lives or, you know, talking more specifically about change, it's like if someone's not adopting your software or whatever it is, um, you look at that and you go, okay, well, let's think about it from their point of view. What's in it for them? What pain are we expecting them to endure? And therefore, what decision are they making? And, That's and it's, genius. It's an equation, <laughs> right? It's, it's really, really simple. They're the two levers you've got. So, Brendan, just to mm -hmm. uh, recall what you said, uh, you said something equal, you said pain plus, no, you reward. said minus so pain. It's reward, reward minus pain, minus equals, pain decision. equals decision. Yes. <laughs> reward minus pain equals decision. Uh, do you think this is in play in every decision that we make, or do you just want to speak about how this is and uh you know how managers and this applies to them because they're making the decisions or you want to even it, it's for every human right like even the employee or the janitor yeah or the, yeah, yeah. The, i mean even, even even something like weight loss right um like let's say you want to go to the gym every day uh, -huh. uh and it, it, that it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because we all drive different levels of reward and we all prioritize different 
levels of reward and we all value different things. So let's say you want to go to the gym every day. So let's say we have a desired decision of going to the gym every day. And you go, okay, what am I currently doing? What, what are the, what's the pain involved with that? Well, at the moment, it's getting, in the, like, getting dressed into the gym clothes, getting in the car, driving to the gym, being at the gym, driving back. So there's the pain in the logistics, but there's also the pain in the time, allocating the time, especially if you're already busy. Um, and there's also the actual, the pain of doing the working out. Right. I wrote it it's, down. It looks like this, right? Reward minus pain equals pain decision. decision. That's it. Hold <laughs> on. You're spot on. Um, and so you look at, okay, well, there's all the pains. So then you look at the rewards. And it's an interesting thing because if you've made, if you've just made the decision to go to the gym, what's the pattern that tends to happen? I mean, when you make, when you make a new, new year's resolution, what tends to happen? I mean, you might be the yeah, exception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, but I, I think uh, what happens is uh, you work hard at it for a week and then you decide that there's too much pain. So you decide no yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so what's an interesting thing about this is, is that it's a, some, such a simple equation, but the rewards and the pains have yeah, lives. Variants. Right. Yeah, they, they basically have time factors. And, and so there are some rewards which don't last very long, and there are some rewards that do last much longer. Mm-hmm. And so if we're looking at the gym, uh, the gym example, it's, uh, you know, like if you've made a news, news resolution or maybe you went to the doctor and they said you need to start going to the gym, you know, you're, you're on the verge of diabetes or, or whatever. Like let's say it's medical oh. driven or it's, uh, you know, resolution, external driven. Um, that kind of motivation tends to wear off rather quickly. Uh, money's the same, surprisingly. Um, mm-hmm. Money is a short-term motivator. It's not, it's not a very good long-term motivator. Um, the, the idea of money, the idea of getting more money is, is a fairly good long-term motivator, but actual just a pay rise um, is short-term only, right? So there are, because we adapt, we just figure out new ways to spend the money and we, and we go, all right, well, now we, now we need more money, right? Um, so there are these short-term motivators, but then there's these long-term ones as well, which if you look at people that go to the gym really regularly, you know, that like, it's like, yep, they go three times a week and they've been doing it for 20 years. They're not motivated by a New Year's resolution or a doctor saying, hey, you've got to go do that. They're motivated mm-hmm. by something internally. And it's this internal satisfaction. It's this pride. It's something else that's motivating them enough that the pain is always present, but the pain is always is, is overcome. And so, so what's really useful for us as a, as, a, as a leader looking at change here is that once you understand what rewards are at play, once you understand what pains are at play, you can start influencing those. So you can actually look at the rewards and say, well, how can I create new things? So the ideas of, you know, maybe you attach money to it. Maybe you make it a game. Maybe you do something else, right? You can actually create more rewards. Um, uh-huh. And, and, start and your, your point was to how to make more, how to, yeah. how to increase the value of the reward is essentially. Yeah, that. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So make strategies to make the, the reward more obvious, more valuable, or you just create new rewards, right? So how do you, you just wanting to stack that reward column and then the pain column, it's um, the question is how do we minimize the pain? So even if we use wow. this, gym, so if we use this gym example, then maybe you can minimize the pain by having the clothes ready every day. So you don't have to go and search for them or it's, uh, you know, in a hyper, in an extreme example, maybe you pick a gym that's next door and so you don't have to travel as far or, or whatever the case is, right? Or you buy some gym equipment for home so you don't have to travel. Brendan, I, I got a quick, I, I love your points here, yeah. man. I think they're quite novel and very helpful. Uh, but one thing that I just wanted to interject and say was um, during the pandemic, my uh, friend, I didn't, I didn't have a car and the gym was at a mall, like, two miles away but my friend he would always invite me every morning to go ride with him in the car and that's how i went to the gym like 20 days in a row <laughs> but now if i try to do it i live in a different part and he doesn't really offer that anymore and mm-hmm. it's colder and like i have more things <laughs> to do in my life and there's just a different appetite for that change but i think i did you know reap benefits such as like muscle mass and strength and Mm. uh just r- decreasing stress because the gym obviously does that for myself and um that's a quite interesting point it's kind of like the path 
to the cha- the, the decision, but the mm-hmm. change. So so if reward minus pain equals decision, what equals change? What do you say? Like, what's the path to that? Because I think that in the notes here, we we had something that you were called a momentum path. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could touch that touch in, into that. We we absolutely can. Yeah, we, we can touch the momentum path Maybe um, a little bit but, after. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so just to kind of, I mean, first of all, what you're saying there around, I went to the gym 20 days in a row. I mean, prime example, because your friend was picking you up, which eliminated the travel pain. Uh, and it turned that pain into a reward because it became social time. Right. And you're like, well, yes, not only yes. am I going to the gym, but I'm actually having social time at the, at the same time. And it's, and, and, you know, especially, I mean, I don't know if you were in lockdown at the time or whatever else, but it was, it's like, it was much needed social time, probably if it's around the pandemic. Um, so the equation very shifted quite dramatically. And that's why you went 20 days in a row. Uh, really nice and clear, really nice and easy. So um, how does change happen? Uh, so as I said, it happens through those ripples. And I think they're the three ripples. And that second ripple there is all about delivery and momentum. And um, I'm not sure how much time we have left on, on this. So, um, I won't. I won't dive. We, we, real we could go for. Another, we, we we could dive deep, man. We got. We got. I I, I don't. We I don't I'll okay. cancel whatever the next list. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's dive then. Um, okay. So momentum's a funny thing, and when I say momentum, I'm talking about um, how well your team is driving and performing and 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 getting stuff done. Right. Uh, Sometimes you could you could think about it as culture. You can think about it as morale. You can think about it as momentum. Whichever way. Um, but I tend to, the way I look at it is it's the collision of two factors and it's the collision of hope and energy. And so hope, hope is an optimism for the work you're doing and, um, your place in the work or your role in the work that you're doing. So it's like optimism for the work you're personally doing and the broader work, right? That's, that's hope. Um, energy is closer to how I would describe my five-year-old, which is just this beautiful enthusiasm and curiosity and this, this excitement, right? Um, so if you think about those two factors as an X, Y axis, and you put hope on the vertical and you put energy on the horizontal, you can, start to draw a pattern in between. Sure. Um, now, what's interesting about this is that I've discovered that it's, it's not a 45-degree line upwards. It's not, it's not an even when hope increases, energy increases, or when energy increases, hope increases. It's not a one-for-one style relationship. What I've found is that it's a curve that leans toward hope first and then flicks over to energy which is why you can't motivate someone who wants to leave. Um, what what we, does that mean now? So, so if you look at, like, if, unless, if, we, if we think about it in terms of a few sections in this XY, you know, this imaginary XY axis, um, <clears throat> if you've got really, really low energy, really, really low hope, like you're someone there that just has, like, no optimism for the work they're doing, they're just not interested in that um, and extremely like extremely low excitement. So just they're not excited. There's no hope. Right. They are, they're someone in the depth of despair, right? Sure. They're, they're someone that doesn't want to be there. And the reason they're there is because they feel stuck for whatever reason, um, because otherwise they wouldn't be there. They would find a way to, and they could, be, they probably are looking for ways. They're looking for jobs. They're looking at ways to get out of it. Um, and so that's someone in the depth of despair. And you, traditional motivational management techniques do not work on someone that wants to leave. They don't mm. care. They're too cynical. Like you, you can empower them to the, to the heart's content. You can challenge them. They'll sit there and laugh at you and say, you yeah, know, thank you. Um, and that's if they're using polite language. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so that's the very bottom there. And so the path, Basically, the path with that kind of group is you've got to foster hope first. You've got to help them feel a sense of optimism and help them mm-hmm. towards their work. So none of the energy, none of the energy techniques work. None of this you know, motivational stuff. It's all there. Now, what if we imagine the complete opposite end? 
highest possible energy, highest possible hope. What do you reckon that would that? What would that look like? Uh, can can you in like what in the context of trying to achieve something? Yeah, yeah. Let's say you've got a team or I'm an employee. Or... Yeah, yeah. Let, let's let, let's let's pull it into the work context. Um, you've got a team of employees. You got a, let's say it's a team of you know ten people. Um, and let's say they are operating operating at that really, 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 really high end, as in extremely high energy, extremely high hope. What do you reckon that looks like? Change or success? And well, high energy, high hope people tend to uh, they they tend to get far. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're running at insane levels of momentum. They're making stuff happen. Uh, and uh-huh. I mean, I, te- I tend to call that group fanatical, right? Like these, if, if we pull it out of the context, and a, a nice way to think about it, these are the people that line up overnight for Apple iPhones, right? Or that turn up to midnight launches of Halo or, or whatever the case is, right? Um, these are fanatical style people. And so when you have a team of fanatics work, when you have a fanatical style culture, which, which, you know, I've seen in, in, I mean, you can see it in startups, you can see it in, in tech places where it's like, these are people that are working 12, 14 hours a day, right? Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes 16 hours a day, they work, sleep, work, sleep. Um, that's fanatical level of momentum. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have to look like a 16, eight style work, sleep style, uh, because that's ultimately not sustainable. But these are people that are really excited about the work they're doing and they are actively getting stuff done, right? This is, this is the top, top end. And you go, okay, well, now we understand the polar, the, what high, extremely low momentum and extremely high momentum looks like. Like low momentum, they are just leaving on the dot. They are like maximizing their sick leave. They have no interest in being there. And then high momentum is these people are living and breathing this just for the pure excitement of it, right? They love it. Wow. All right. And you go, okay. <laughs> There's probably some degrees within there. Uh, and and I, so I tend to think about there's roughly, there's five stages in there. You've got despair. Then above that, you've got people that are fearful. So people that are fearful that are taking on risk. So they have a little bit of hope, um, but they don't yet know how to display it. Above that, you get people that are hopeful or just cruising. They're comfortable. That's kind of your middle sure. of the range. Sure. Um, and then above that, you have motivated and then eventually fanatical, right? That's, that's the stages through this. And so... The path is useful for any anyone that's leading a team in particular. I mean, it's useful for us to, to do a quick gauge. You go, well, how do I feel about my work? Where am I on right. this? Um, but the other element is if you're leading a team, it's really, really important to keep, get a bearing on where the, your team is on this roughly. Like, uh, is this a team that's stifled by fear or is this a team that's highly motivated and perhaps even fanatical? Because where they are is going to inform what kind of actions or what kind of things you need to implement to help boost that momentum. So if they're fearful, you've got to look at normalization. You've got to make it okay to fail. You've got to make it okay to succeed. You've got to make it good. You know, you basically, you've got to embrace learning so that they, you got to embrace risk and learning, and then they're going to be able to overcome that fear. Um, But if they're up and motivated, then you're not talking about fear. You're not talking about risk because they're already motivated. And you go, well, how do I make them fanatical? And that's all about um, that's all about giving them something to talk about, doing something that's unusually positively different, you know, creating uh-huh. some positive disruption and helping them feel really attached to the work they're doing, you know, creating a tribe, making them a strong sense of belonging, you know, buying them all swag, right? Like whatever it is, uh, it's, it's helping, really helping them rally. And so no matter where you are on that momentum path, it's, it's useful because it informs, okay, where do I need to go next? Where do I need to take my team next in order to keep building momentum? Brendan, I'm, I'm sure in your book you touch upon this like with real core life examples. And mm. I love how we're diving into like psychology, philosophy behind why people are making decisions and why their actions are the way that they are. But have you observed either from a client or in general history, like this could even include military war, whatever you want to draw from, but have you, have you seen this in play in a, I'm, I'm sure you have, but like, what's your prime example you, you like to even uh, talk about just because 
I think this stuff is quite fascinating. Uh, there's a lot of successful people in the world. And I mean, maybe we look at the leaders of big country, like maybe it's a president, maybe it's uh, the guy who makes, um, who works at an investment bank and takes credit for all the success, but there's all these inner workings in the machine, right? Like, mm. <laughs> like, uh, and getting them all to work uh, smoothly is uh, very just um, and smoothly and happily is kind of what you're talking about. Cause kind of like if you were to, to go back to industrial revolution, like I'm sure those workers hated their lives and, you know, mm. were worked to death and all that. But what's, what's, what's an example you say that this has played out uh, to, to, you know, success or just, had happy ending or you know what i mean just happy happy (laughs) like happy ending happy happy middle happy start because i think like maybe it's a picturesque like uh uh, ideal but a lot of people will the the cynics or the critics will say that this can't really exist uh what what's what's your um response to that yeah so my response to that is we're not striving for perfection uh and and it's it's interesting right in that Every time I talk about the momentum path, it's there are you could easily it's it's a two dimensional style model, right? Energy and hope, um, and you can absolutely add in a million other dimensions. You could look at that and you could go, well, yeah, there's personal factors, there's this factor, there's this factor. Like it's it's messy, without a doubt, it is messy. Um, so what I tend to use it as, and what I recommend leaders use it as, is it's a gut feel gauge. Right, it's a it's a rough gauge on where should our focus be, and and no more. And I, and I mean, you ask for examples, and so something that there's a pattern that I tend to see a lot uh, is that when you're leading a team, you tend to be. Uh, I've found that most leaders tend to be more optimistic of where the team culture is than what the team thinks the the team culture is, um, and and I've shown that a number of times with my clients. I run anonymous surveys. Um, and so number one, that's a good reality check. Um, but the, what you really focus on and what, I, what I've seen a number of times with my clients is it's not necessarily about building to fanatic. Like that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And, and if you're not already, like if, like if you have a team that's in fearful or despair, like at the very, very bottom, building them to fanatic is that's a long-term uh, problem. That's not a, that's not a short-term problem. That's a long-term problem. <laughs> but what you can do is you can look at what's the next stage, right? What's the next level up and just get more momentum. So it doesn't have to be perfect momentum, but you can get more momentum. And so that's, I've done that a number of times with my clients where it's, I've seen a lot of the time they'll come in and they'll most of the, the teams will be sitting in either fearful or or even just comfortable, they're happy cruising. And the discussion shifts to okay, well, what needs to change to bump them up just one level? And when you're using active strategies here, and I mean there was an example here where there was one team where the leader actually thought it was a so it was a government team. Um so it was a, a team that worked for government. Uh, that was a team of about 12 people. And the leader thought that they were all highly, like nicely motivated. And so we ran, ran the survey, uh, ran the session and found that they self-allocated themselves as a team. They saw that the general feeling is somewhere between fearful and comfortable. And number one, the leader was uh, surprised by that. It was well under where he, where he thought the team culture was performing at. Um, but then what he did was he started looking at treating it. He started stopping trying to motivate them in, in terms of those, those strategies that you would use at the top. And he started looking at normalization strategies. How do we make it safer to learn and to take risks? How do I do that? And so he did that using you know, basically built in some, some retrospectives and some replays and, um, and celebrating successes, celebrating failures. And he started implementing some things around that. And what happened was the whole team was able to ratchet up from fearful up to comfortable. And some of those that were uncomfortable started teetering upwards as well. Um, and so that's what I mean in terms of it's not about getting to the, it's not necessarily about getting to the very top. I mean, obviously you want to get there if you can, 
but it's more about being able to focus in on on the culture that you're looking for and dial that in wow yeah yeah <laughs> it's uh it's a really like fascinating topic i i i think like we could it's easy to get caught up in the whole grand scheme of things or just the day-to-day busyness that you don't even pay attention to where things are going anymore. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty like great to hear um, about uh, your perspectives and research and uh, uh, the ways that you're helping businesses and people um, with whatever they might need change for. Uh, well, Brandon, one, one thing I want to talk to you more about is just your book, right? Like, so you, you have a book and it's called Valuable Change. Um, what What's the book about? Is the book about everything we're talking about here? What's, uh... Yeah, so, so Valuable Change is, um, it, I, I mean, I, I wrote that partially out of frustration <laughs> in that um, I just kept seeing so many projects, so many changes uh, that didn't deliver what they should be delivering. Um, in terms of solving the problem. And so um, the, book, the book is the result of my experience across over $12 billion worth of change um, in terms of well, these are the factors that actually shift the dial. These are the key elements. And we talked about some today, absolutely, but there's far more in it. Um, and it's probably structured a little bit better as well. Um, but it's really as if you're leading change and it doesn't, small or big, what are the key questions you need to be asking? and answering and how should you be driving things through and what things should you be thinking about? That's what the book is, is answering. Very, very cool. Is the book on Amazon or Barnes and Noble bookshelves? It's how do people- everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> uh, Audio book, paperback, hardcover, ebook. It's everywhere. Amazon. Um, as I've put it as many places as I possibly can. Uh, very cool. Very cool. I'm writing a book too. So that's uh, just- oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, well Br- Brendan, um, did you uh, do self-publishing? You found a publisher, somebody in Australia. What was your uh, yeah? So I'm, I'm so I'm self-published. Yeah. Did, um, did you ever think of signing with the Penguin or trying to get an agent? And how you? Um, I, I have. Yeah. Um, uh, it's it's on the list of things to do uh, to to go through and and get that commercially published through an agent. Um, but self-publishing is much faster, much much faster, and I wanted to get it to market really quickly. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, the the cover looks nice. I mean, I'm sure the content's uh, also very special. And I'm gonna add it to the list of books to read. I, I gotta get a signed copy though. Yeah, of course, <laughs> I, I, can do that. That. <laughs> I can do that. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, uh, I think this whole the whole concept is really fascinating. I'm trying to figure out what what's the one more thing that we. Could have another cool conversation on and yeah. um 